Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So today we're going to talk about anxiety. Now, I know this has been a topic that's been in the news for the last while, specifically coming out of the pandemic. But my belief is that the levels of anxiety, or at least the conversations about anxiety, have been increasing in the years prior to the pandemic. And I'm not seeing them go anywhere to decline post the pandemic. So we want to talk about what is this? Why is it happening? What's the neuroscience a little bit behind the anxiety? And for those of us who are not diagnosed with a psychological anxiety disorder, what should we be looking out for? And more importantly, what we can do, what can we do? And I want to take a little bit of time to say, as a leader, I know you're not responsible for the entire psychological health of your employees. But being clued in on when it's tipped over the line is probably a good thing. So you at least know where to encourage people to go or what encourage people to think about. So my guest today is uniquely and brilliantly qualified to talk about this. She has expertise in this topic that seems to be pervading our lives personally and culturally. So Dr. Tracy Marks is here to help heal the U.S. and I would also say the world's anxiety epidemic. And she has over a million followers on her weekly YouTube channel, which I cannot recommend enough. It's brilliantly accessible, easy to do, and it's her channel is Dr. Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, Marks. Strongly recommend, if you're interested in this, to go and listen to some more of the things that she describes there. And her mission also, by the way, is to increase mental health awareness and understanding, because that's the beginning part for self-improvement. Now, um, in addition, she is a forensic psychiatrist with over a thousand opinions through independent medical evaluations, criminal assessments, civil litigation, as well as working in state and federal courts and in the military's court-martialing process. In addition, as if that isn't enough, she has a general psychiatry clinically clinical practice focused on mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and burnouts, a regular contributor on CNN and other places. And her latest book is Why Am I So Anxious? So Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Boy, is, are you sure that's me? I'm positive that's you. And don't <laughs> you go down that line either. <laughs> that makes me tired just hearing all that. <laughs> you do a lot and you have an awful lot to say to people that I think in so many walks of life that are concerned about this. But I always like to start people to ask people why. What got you started thinking about and working with anxiety? What was the driver for you? Well, starting and working with people with anxiety. So as you mentioned, I still have a clinical practice. So I still treat patients. I'm still working in that space. And I would say a good portion of them come to me with depression and probably the remainder or another good portion would be anxiety issues um, and then a smattering of other diagnoses. Even the people with the other diagnoses or depression still often have anxiety folded into their problem or into their presentation. So all that to say is 
probably most people I talk to have anxiety at some level, whether it's to the degree of having a whole separate disorder or whether it's it's just an addition based on life stressors. Okay. Um, and I I do think, I don't think it's an, it's any coincidence that the pandemic and things that happened after the pandemic of, you know, us still feeling like we're in a pandemic, plus all of the strife and everything we've experienced, just ramped up the need to address anxiety even more. So this isn't a new problem, but I do think it's reached proportions that has affected the masses more than it has before. Okay. All right. So I think the pandemic has made it possible to talk about anxiety because it's normalized it. As I look at my clients, the people I deal with in large organizations, I would bet 70% of them have some degrees of being overly anxious about something. Now, they wouldn't tip into a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, like an obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, but there's just this heightened sense of tension that just permeates their entire bodies. I guess is the best way I know how to describe it. And I'm not the clinical psychologist either. You are. So, and it's interesting why you think, so yes, the pandemic has increased it, but why, do you think it's just the human condition? Do you think there are, condition, there are factors going on in the world that have increased our levels of anxiety? What do you think is causing this? I think uh, twofold. One, I think there's an increased incidence, but then there's also an increased awareness. And so more people are actually recognizing that what they are experiencing is anxiety and are talking about it more openly. So as far as the things that have increased the incidence of it um, would be the 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 social, uh, the impact of the of of the anxiety, the impact of the um, pandemic, the political issues, war, economic uh, crises, and then post pandemic, you've got the effect of isolation. Um, although some people have thrived at the ability to work from home and not have to drive, like I'm in Atlanta with horrible Atlanta traffic. There are still some people where this is incredibly depleting for them to be disconnected from other people. So I think that's also played a big role in increasing anxiety as well as burnout and depression. Um, but then the other part that I that is a double-edged sword is the increased awareness. So, you know, with TikTok. TikTok has exploded the awareness of the millennial group and teens, even though anxiety starts in the teenage years before, say, maybe a couple of years ago, we really weren't talking about it that much. I mean, clinically, we knew this, but there really wasn't an outlet for an anxious child to necessarily even talk to their parents about it or for the parents to know or recognize that what their child is experiencing is anxiety. So, I think that also has just kind of opened the floodgates of people who are actually talking about this openly. Okay. 
I listening to you, I'm thinking that the, you know, burnout and anxiety probably go together. So part of what I see, what I believe, and many of my um, customers and clients is that people are doing so much more. They've got so many more tasks on their plate than they've ever had in their past. We've downsized and right-sized and squeezed until people are not just doing two and three jobs, but five and six and seven jobs. And I think that has just, like, there is no time to stop, it seems, or people feel like they can't stop. That can't be good for the body. It isn't good for the body. We have to have a separation between work and play, whatever that play looks like for you. It doesn't have to mean going outside and playing. It could be as simple as sitting down and reading the paper in peace and quiet. So, um, but with the ability to work from home or even the need to work from home, um, uh, people inadvertently ended up working harder because they could stop, pause, go to the laundry, go pick up their child or whatever, come back and do some more emails. And then also, I think that it kind of um, uh, piggybacks on the expectations that have been uh, changed for us with social media. So with social media and how much time we spend online connecting with each other socially that way, I think that's built the expectation that we sh- that you should respond immediately. You know, someone sends you a text message, um, they expect to hear back from you pretty soon. Um, so with with working from home too, the extension of that is is that someone sends you an email at seven p.m. There's this unwritten expectation that you're going to respond to that email because you're home, right? You've been home all day. Right. So, yeah, I do think uh, the unfortunate side of the convenience aspect of working from home has been working harder and not being able to separate work from your home life such that it kind of contaminates or spills into your your leisure time. Right. Right. I talk to so many people who say I've gotten in the habit of feeling that I have to have my phone or device beside me, even when I'm sitting down in the evening to relax, whether that's with family or on my own or just watching TV or whatever it is before I fall asleep. And I feel like I can't not pick that up and check work email. Whereas pre-pandemic, I could feel like I could create a separation there. And so it just becomes part of this environment. I was with a group, I want to piggyback on what you're saying about social media. I was with a group of millennials this weekend and the whole social chat thing has just exploded in many of our lives. So I know I feel it. There's a lot more channels, a lot more people, a lot more, you know, and I start adding 20 and 30 people to a channel and suddenly keeping up with that channel becomes stressful. And I watched people get stressed because of not having the time to read and respond, even though that's supposed to be about fun. So that has some interesting implications too. All right. So the demands, the social, the environmental questions around climate and political and economics and world chaos and strife, all of those are adding to our anxiety. The jobs themselves are adding to our levels of anxiety. The awareness is adding to it. The social media, the constantly present, all of those are increasing anxiety levels. 
Give us a quick tour. Now, you do a lovely job in your book, Why Am I So Anxious, about telling us how the brain works so that a normal person could understand it. Short, tight, quick, brief description. What do we need to know about our brain on anxiety? We need to know that anxiety is instinctive. So it's not all abnormal. Um, We are hardwired to sense danger and fear and react to it to protect ourselves. And those built-in mechanisms for that are what people will refer to as your lizard brain, um, which is our structures like the amygdala and things that react automatically to a perceived threat. Sometimes, though, it's not a perfect system and you can get false alarms where you, you can fear future situations that may or may not come to pass. And now you're, you're, you're beyond um, detecting the threat of a bear walking into your backyard. Now you have the same kind of reaction just spontaneously with no obvious threat in front of you or from you anticipating something happening like a test is coming up or a meeting. Um, so um, so the, the short answer is, is that some anxiety is normal and is what we're supposed to have, and but it can go too far and become abnormal and cause problems for you. Okay. So how do I know if the anxiety I'm feeling, let me just keep it personal at the moment, is in the normal, I should feel anxious or starting to tip into the, this is, I don't want to go so far as saying abnormal, like a disorder, but where's the borderline between day in and day out expected and over the top? Okay. So probably looking at two measures, um, there's more than that, but just kind of, we can trim it down to two measures is um, how proportional is it to the, the stressor? Is there even a stressor and how long it lasts? Um, And then I'll add one more and how much it affects your, your day-to-day functioning. So if we take the first one, is it proportional to the stressor? So, um, you have some heavy deadlines coming up that you've got to meet and everything's behind schedule. Um, You're stressed about making, about whether or not you're going to deliver the goods on time. So all the way leading up to that, maybe you're having trouble sleeping, you're having trouble holding down or eating, or you may be drinking more to kind of settle down in the evenings. That would be normal, so to speak, reactionary, stress-related anxiety, anticipating something. Then when when you get past that deadline, you start to relax, you feel better, and all of the symptoms that you had before just kind of go away and fade away until the next stressor comes. Mm -hmm. So that's with an identifiable stressor and you having a reaction to that. an over-the-top reaction perhaps may be that, say, a couple days before the deadline, you you can't even show up for work because you're waking up, throwing up every day. You can barely think straight. You're making lots of mistakes. You have to be pulled off the project because you, you just can't handle it. That's a more extreme reaction than the person who's just kind of not having a very relaxed evening. They're kind of hating this, but hey, the finish line is a few days out. The persistency part to this is um, the deadline passes, 
And the person for whom it doesn't persist, it just kind of fades away and they can go on vacation or enjoy their weekend and they're good on Monday. For the person for whom the, the it's it, for the person who has the persistent symptoms, it's as if the stressor never went away. They're still waking up having trouble, um, waking up nauseous in the morning or having trouble going to sleep or having trouble keeping up with their work because their their mind is racing and they're worrying. They're worrying about the next thing that's, you know, a year away. So those are some examples of how um, the how long it persists, how intense it is, and how much trouble it caused you um, are factors that determine what's normal versus abnormal anxiety. Okay, so I have a looming deadline. It's a tight deadline. It is whatever it is for whatever reason it is. I would expect to feel some stress-related symptoms, probably wake up in the middle of the night, probably have a hard time settling down. That would be appropriate to the event I have upcoming that I am rightly anxious about. But if it lasts past that deadline, then we want to have a flag and we want to say, how long past that deadline, double and triple flag, how intense the reaction past that deadline, double and triple and quadruple flag, and does it start to affect my day-to-day functioning, like thinking, sleeping, eating, general health? Correct. It can even affect your relationships because you become irritable and mm-hmm. snappy. Or if you start using other things to help you settle down rather than natural things like um, trying to optimize your sleep or going to the gym or even taking a, a weekend trip somewhere to relax, um, you're drinking more than your usual or you know taking something else, illicit even, um, to cope on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yes, we all have our favorite overindulgence, mm-hmm. whatever that is that um, we should should or shouldn't be doing in quite that volume level. And so on we go with that one. All right. I see this in leadership in particular. So people have heard me describe this before. You think that irritability is somewhat, quote, normal because your team hasn't performed the way you would like them to. And now there's this deadline and you're worried about it. And therefore you should be upset with them for not having gotten this done before. But as a leader, that irritability shifts really quickly from it's okay to say, why did we wait this late versus you're now snappy with them or on edge with them or a little harsher with your feedback than you need to do. And now you're passing off the anxiety onto them in a way that is not constructive. And that boundary line I see in leaders all the time driven by stressors in the world that they're not coping with. Yeah, it can get muddled because yes, on the one hand, you do have a real reason to be disappointed, aggravated, and even mad. But an unstressed uh, person who's um, who is managing their own anxiety should be able to deliver criticism or negative feedback in a way that's not demeaning, that's not hurtful to people, and maybe and not even personal. But the person who's having trouble managing their anxiety, so you're already it's already gotten to you. Right. Um, is not going to be as um, uh, is not going to be as aware of how what you're saying is affecting people, 
and it may get, um, you may even say things that are inappropriate. So it's, you know, it's, it it is a fine line between what's the right approach, what, what's normal in that scenario and what's over the top. Right. Right. And you have to keep in mind too, as a leader, even if you're just on a project team and you're trying to get work out of people, the more you pass on that anxiety to other people, the less they are now capable of thinking, performing, making decisions, the more time it takes from them to settle themselves down. So you're just hampering the work ultimately. So timing is also a factor here all the way through. Okay. Um, we've talked about that one. Um, if I, I want to shift a little bit. So let's say I'm not feeling stressed. And I'm not passing on my anxiety to anybody else. I've got this somewhat under control, let's hope. And I'm looking at my team members. How do I know, what should I be watching for that says maybe they have tipped into the unhelpful category? Great question. So um, some indicators would be their level of productivity. So has their productivity dropped? They just and and that's different from their having trouble meeting the deadline. Um, let's say basic things or things that they were able to handle before seems like they can't handle it. You know what's the problem? Um, so multiple deadlines that they're not meeting, perhaps. Another subtle way this could look is someone who now doesn't have very much confidence. Um, doubting yourself could be a manifestation of excessive worry about your capabilities or worrying about what someone's going to uh, think of you, mm-hmm. think of your performance. So um, generally, I mean, granted, a person can just be um, naturally insecure. That could be part of their personality. But also anxiety can take a person who normally is fairly self-assured and put them over onto the other side of the fence of being feeling very insecure and feeling out of their comfort zone in a way right, right. that makes them not perform. Um, you know, and then the other things like uh, the person looking like they're not well, um, uh, looking very tired, they're not getting very much sleep, maybe you, the co- the person, your employee being very snappy, and that's not like their usual personality. So, um, So those would be just some things that could be a red flag that this person's struggling. I've seen people that I have worked with over a longer period of time, and when they're under intense stress and high levels of anxiety coming from that, their face changes. It's almost like the shape of their face changes. I don't know if that means, I don't know why, but you can look at them and see you don't look like yourself. You just, something's wrong here. Well, you know, that's very observant because, and and legitimate. I mean, we have facial muscles. Uh-huh. And so you can have, so your facial muscles can tense up in a way that it does change the shape of your face um, with, you know, lines in between your eyebrows or even just, um, you know, someone with a very relaxed face, their face will look loose and things where if they get very tense, it's like uh, the shape of their mouth can change. I mean, that's a real thing. So that, that's okay. a great observation. Well, I have seen that, and I always see it changing around the jawline, literally, mm-hmm. right through the mouth and then the jawline. And it's different. And as I can't figure out, it's not like they've lost weight or gained weight or anything like that. Now I know why, at least. Mm-hmm. 
but I have certainly seen that one. So you can see that in people. And I remember um, a couple of years ago, I was working with a younger guy who felt that the workload was so demanding that he needed to work to train himself to live on four to five hours sleep. And he was sustaining that over a period of months. We're not talking about a night here or there. We're talking about nights and weeks and months on end. Um, he thought he was handling it just fine. His peers thought he was impossible to deal with, unpleasant, didn't like him, a whole bunch of other negative reactions, which he thought, well, that's because they're not performing. And his manager could actually see that he wasn't doing the job as well as the manager wanted him to without any clue why. So again, we see anxiety, the belief that you need to do it without sleep, and it ultimately hits your productivity. It does. And the sleep thing is huge. And people people often take that for granted. They see, that, see it as expendable. Um, and it's the thing that you shave away from to be able to accommodate more hours in your day. So instead of planning around sleep, like I want to make all adults should get seven to nine hours of sleep. So instead of planning around that, it's like, I just sleep as long. I, I go to sleep when my work is done yeah. and that is the wrong mindset to have. Right. Right. I think I watch people and I think they way underestimate how long it takes them to do something when they have not managed the sleep or the eating or the anxiety or all these other components, your brain is occupied with something else and it's not thinking. Okay. Um, I want to move to talking about what we do about this. Um, but I think this is probably a great spot for a break. So okay. I've been talking with Dr. Tracy Marks. The topic, as you can tell, is anxiety. And anxiety, as um, Tracy has said, is a normal part of human existence, and it is hardwired into our brain. When we perceive a real threat, we want to be able to react, move, take appropriate action on it. The problem is when we perceive a threat that is not there, and when we perceive it for too long, those are the kind of things that impact us. And we want to look at how proportional the stress is to the real threat, we want to look at how long the stress or anxiety reaction lasts, and we want to look at how it's affecting our day-to-day -day functioning to let us know when this is normal, quote-unquote, or starting to be abnormal. All right, and with that, uh, we'll be right back after the break to talk about, so now what do you do as an ordinary person to help calm down levels of anxiety? Right back. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Tracy Marks. Tracy's book, by the way, is Why Am I So Anxious? Highly recommend it. And even more so, I recommend her YouTube channel, Dr. Tracy Marks, spelled T-R-A-C-E-Y. Great insights on those lovely digestible podcast or postings, videos that show up about every week, I think, and over a million subscribers. So clearly lots to say on this topic and tons of experience, both in legal settings, as well as in her private clinical practice. All right. So Tracy, just before the break, we were talking about um, the kind of rec how do you recognize the symptoms of when this anxiety that might be normal has gone too far, 
we were talking about how to recognize it as a manager when somebody is starting to tip into it's impacting their productivity or impacting their confidence or impacting their appearance in ways that are very noticeable. And we were talking about the things that we believe we can get away with. And we we're talking about sleep. So you have other comments about time that we need to be paying attention to? Yes. Yeah, so you were you, you made the comment that uh, one of the things that you notice that people will underestimate how long things take. And I would say absolutely yes. And I think that's something people don't know or aren't aware that that's what they're doing. So with sleep, um, as I mentioned, most adults need seven to nine hours to be refreshed. Um, there's a lot of important things that go on during sleep. And if you imagine a warehouse that's receiving goods, um, once the day ends, there's another crew that needs to come in there and put things away. You don't want people coming back to the warehouse and everything scattered. Well, that same kind of cleanup stuff is going on while we're sleeping, both for our bodies and our minds. And in your mind, that's when we have the most memory consolidation. So the things that you learned during the day kind of get stored in the right places for easy retrieval later. And that happens while you're sleeping. So when you don't get enough sleep, you don't, you're not as efficient in your thinking. Your thinking is slowed and it may not be slowed to the degree that you're able to sense, boy, I'm thinking slow today. It's just, it just is. So what then can happen is that you underestimate how long things can take you because it normally takes you 30 minutes to do this, but it's not, it takes you 45 minutes now just because you're slower, but you're not, you don't anticipate that. So you pile up all these things that are going to take you longer because you don't appreciate that you're thinking slower. Okay. So this explains why it takes me longer some days to come up with the right word or the right phrasing or the right example or the right name. And other days I'm going to come with those really fast. Okay. My sleep quality. I got it. Understood. All right, Tracy, let's go to the, what do we do about it? Um, so I've got more of an anxiety reaction than is warranted. It's sustained longer than is appropriate. It is starting to impact my sense of well-being, if not also my sense of confidence and a whole other things. What are the things we can do to help reduce that anxiety response? So if it hasn't gotten too bad, you can take a self-help approach to address these things on your own by changing some lifestyle factors, as well as doing your own things to unwind and calm yourself and relax. Um, some of those things, I think the 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 first three kind of basic foundations that I think um, everyone should have in place, and then you build tools on top of those are your diet. So having a clean, eating as clean as possible by reducing um, processed foods and high sugar foods. Um, a second thing is the sleep that we've already talked about by prioritizing seven to nine hours. What does that mean to prioritize sleep? That means setting a bedtime and working your schedule around your bedtime rather than the other way around. You work and you fall, you fall asleep when you're done working and doing everything else at home. So that means sometimes if there's a lot of work you're doing that you might not be able to say, you know, do enough things in the evening. You know, if I'm binge watching this show, I'm not going to be able to get in three episodes of it tonight because I didn't finish work early enough. 
Um, and then the third pillar or foundational thing would be exercise, um, trying to get at least 150 minutes of medium intensity exercising. That could be a brisk walk, and that could be 30 minutes, five days a week. So those three things I'm sure everyone has heard before, and it sounds like, yeah, 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 I do all that, but do you really? And those things are very necessary to build on because if you don't have those basic things in order, then the other things are only going to have so much impact. So once you try and kind of clean up those, I you could think of them as kind of like the structural things of your foundation building blocks, um, then you can look at trying to build uh, your own or create your own set of tools that help you unwind, decompress, and calm yourself. And what works for one person may not work for the other person. And so one of the things about my book is that I include a bunch of different options that I divide into body tools, mind tools, and behavior tools that give you a lot of different options to see what works for you. Okay. So for example, um, I, I do think one thing that could encompass any of using any of those tools, but is more of a, 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 a habit to develop is to have at least, um, this kind of goes back to sleep a little bit, to have at least an hour wind down period um, before sleep. So you don't just stop working and then oh, it's 11 o'clock pop into bed. That's not going to work. So you need to have an hour before sleep. That's prepping for sleep, brushing, flossing your teeth, whatever you do to go to sleep. And then 30 minutes of, um, lights out trying to fall asleep. But then I'd go one step further to have another hour that is where you're doing something that gives you pleasure or gives you joy and that is relaxing. So you don't want to um, balance your checkbook, you know, right before bed. Um, in that time of doing something for yourself, that is when you can pull in some relaxation activities, whether it be um, listening to pleasant music, it could be even watching a television show that you like. Um, in my book, uh, in the behavior uh, section, I talk about how the use of humor mm -hmm. is, is very therapeutic. And this could be as easy as watching a comedy show, but it can also be um, even anticipating watching something you think is going to be funny is relaxing and helps diffuse some of the anxiety and tension you experience. One more thing on this topic of humor, suppose you say, well, when I'm anxious and uptight, nothing is funny to me. I don't watch comedy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Studies have shown that forced laughter mm -hmm. is similarly therapeutic as spontaneous laughter. So finding something funny and humorous. Forced laughter is not, you don't find, you're not doing it because you find it funny. You are actually going through the exercise of making yourself laugh. Um, and, and I talk about laughter yoga in the book, but it's like going through these exercises of, let's say I wanted to um, tell a story. And instead of saying, well, I went to the store and da, 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 I'd, I'd say something like, and 
ha 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 and he 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 and you know i i explain it a little bit better than that in the book but the point is is that um you don't have to find something funny or be a jokester in order for humor to be something that you can engage in it could also be something that that you make into an exercise that you do that has a similar effect so are you saying then that if I just force myself to laugh, like I go through the motions of laughing, even if I'm not feeling very funny about it, that it can have a therapeutic effect? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Isn't that fascinating? And we it know is. that if one person in a group starts laughing, everybody else gets the giggles too. So it becomes contagious and then that builds on itself. Correct. That's exactly right. So even if it did, you did not kind of spill over into spontaneous laughter, there's a good chance you would with the exercise of making yourself laugh. But even if you don't, it's still helpful. But oftentimes, it just kind of has a snowball effect and you end up finding something funny. Something funny where along the line. So I have read that um, smiling even if you're not feeling happy or upbeat, that smiling can also lift your mood. So this is related to what you're saying. Laughing, laughing works as well, whether it's genuine or fake. Correct. Similar concept. I love that one. Okay. So this notion of finding time, which people go, I don't have it. That's the reason I'm stressed in the first time. So I've got my bedtime routine and in my bedtime routine, an hour before I'm falling asleep, I am not checking my emails, doing household tasks, any of those other taxing components. I only want to do things that either are part of my routine or I find pleasurable and relaxing. And I need some time in addition to that, that is just for me to do something that I find joyful. Okay. Correct. And when you when people say to me, but I don't have anything that gives me a sense of joy, then I think we have to go dig a little bit deeper and start thinking about what might give you a sense of joy, whether that's reading, listening to music, drawing, dancing. I mean, I think there's a host of things. All right. So that's one tool. Can you give us some other kind of in the mind area, the behavior area, uh, anything that you think is particularly useful as a technique? Sure. So in the mind area, um, two things come to mind. So one is a little more active, one a little more passive. The active one is journaling. Um, I'm a big fan of journaling, and there's different ways that you can journal. Okay. Um, there's kind of a less structured way of journaling is, I call it journaling for catharsis, just writing out maybe an incident that happened or just free floating ideas that you have. And it's almost like it's a way of having someone to talk to. Your journal is the person that you're talking to, getting these thoughts out of your head and onto paper. And so similarly, as the the satisfaction you can get out of like talking to a friend and getting this all out of your out of your system, you can have the similar experience of getting it onto paper. Um, and then there's gratitude journaling, there's worry journaling that I talk about in the book. So there's different ways to have a more structured experience of the journaling. The more passive approach or a passive thing you could do is engaging in mindfulness. And in this case, it would be mindfulness in everyday activities. So 
being mindful is simply being focusing in on the present moment without judgment. And it, it sounds very easy, but uh, you, if you really think about it, probably if you're you know busy, ambitious person, most of the time you are thinking about something different from what you're actually engaged in. So let's say you go to the grocery store to pick up some a few things on the way home. Um, you may be thinking about this other thing you got to do at work or what you got to do, what you have to do tomorrow while you're, you know, picking up these items and going through the line. So that's mindless thought. And when your mind is actively engaged in um, future related things, especially, but also past things, ruminating about if I had done it this way or what do I think these people thought of me, that kind of stuff, those kinds of thoughts are um, stir up tension. And they're, they're a negative thinking experience. So with mindfulness, you are trying to focus in on what it is you're currently doing and using all of your senses to appreciate that experience. So let's say I'm washing dishes, which is not fun, but if I'm washing dishes, instead of me again thinking about a couple of more things I need to do before I go to bed tonight, I'm focusing in on how the water sounds as I'm as as I turn on the faucet. What's the temperature of the water? How do the suds feel on my hand? Um, what are the what does it smell like? You know, things like that. You're you're engaging all of your senses in on this very basic experience, but it becomes a fuller, richer experience because you're you're there in the moment. And the more you can go through life being in the moment instead of in the future or past, the more uncluttered your mind is mm -hmm. and the less tension and stress that you create for your mind. Right. That may be the single best explanation of mindfulness I have ever heard. And I've heard lots and lots and lots of them because we get wrapped around all of these activities and classes and training sessions and so on. And to just say, I'm going to tune into the five senses and the experience of those five senses in the moment I'm in right now, rather than letting my brain race ahead on something else or race back on something that has happened. Love it five senses. How does it feel? Smell, taste, if appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. All of those here. What am I hearing? All of those. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I love that. So I've heard certainly advise people to do the unstructured journaling where you're just writing. So it's, I think it is a powerful technique, way underappreciated how much that can do to get it out of your head onto a piece of paper. So you're not carrying those thoughts around. I've certainly seen a lot and read a lot about gratitude journals where you're writing every day, what are you grateful for? I've heard pros and cons from people's experiences of that one, but I've never heard about worry journals. So tell me about that one. Yeah. So if you are someone who tends to worry a lot, and not everyone is, but um, generalized anxiety disorder, for example, is a disorder, but one of the main features of it is worrying. Mm -hmm about any and everything. Mm -hmm. But even aside from that, it could just be your baseline temperament personality to worry. Rather than have the worry consume you for most of the day and can even run in the background, like I was talking about washing dishes, 
you're thinking about what if this and what if that. You have to use discipline to say, I have set a time, set aside this appointment time at 2 p.m. I'm going to have time to just let it rip and worry about all of this stuff. You're going to write it down. So you actually make an appointment with yourself to fully indulge all of your worries, write them down. And the benefit of writing them down, well, a benefit, not only is it getting it out of your head onto paper, is you can find that if you go back and look at some of your previous entries, some of the things that you were worrying about may have already been resolved. And you may even appreciate that, gosh, I was worried about that and look what happened. And that can help you for future worries that, hmm, okay, yes, I'm worried about this, but it may turn out to be just like these other things. And so it can help diffuse some of the anxiety you have about your current worries looking at previous activity. Because most times, if you're not writing these things down, it's like Groundhog Day. It's, you know, you could have had the problem solved two weeks ago. Here's the problem again. And you can't remember how it turned Mm -hmm. out positively before. It's as if it's happening for the first time again. Right. Right. Now, I have read and heard that the act of writing, as in the old-fashioned pen to paper, is more effective than the typing on a computer screen. Is that, do you know if that's true or not? I have heard that. um, And I don't know, like I've heard that in in the way that I've um, rationed it out or rationalized it out in my head as to how it could be true, because I'm not sure if that's exactly true. But I could see that being true because the um, there's different areas in your brain um, that work with um, writing and moving your hand and the muscles in your fingers and things like that. Like all of that kind of um, movement matters versus, say, um, typing on a keyboard, even typing with your thumbs on your phone. So just the process of like actually looking at the physical space of a paper and writing and making sure you have enough space and going to the next line, like that's a whole different kind of thinking process than typing. I can see that. And besides which, I think most of us type all day long at any rate. So there is a change in pace Mm -hmm. from stopping typing and going into the handwriting. Okay, less structured journaling, just write whatever's on your mind as if you were talking to your best friend who happens to be the journal Gratitude journal where you write the things that you are grateful for and usually in a defined time, like in this day, and list those. And a worry journal, I love this, where you set aside a time, a finite period of time, where I can indulge in my worries and I write them all down in my journal and keep track of it so that I can look back and say, oh, that wasn't such a big deal, or geez, I'm worrying about the same thing over and over again. Let me come up with a solution for that. Or just I indulge for my 15, 30 minutes, and then I can put it aside and not keep stressing about it. Okay. Mindfulness. All right. Now I'm curious in the last few minutes here about a behavior technique, because there's an awful lot being published about uh, cognitive behavior therapy, CBTs. Do you have one of those for us that we should be thinking about? Let's see. So the yoga, uh, Sorry, the um, laughter yoga was one. Yeah. Um, Love that Probably one. the most common one and probably the one I 
maybe talk the most about in that section chapter in the book is exposure therapy. And there's lots of different kinds of exposure therapy, but one of the things that can come along with anxiety and fear is avoidance. So it's natural for us to avoid the thing that uh, makes us uncomfortable or that we're afraid of. The more you avoid, the, the stronger the fear grows and it gets just reinforced by your avoidance. So you want to um, face your fear, uh, you know, so to speak, with exposure therapy to get past the avoidance and break through that. And, you know, what you do to engage in that kind of exercise depends on what it is you're avoiding. So, um, you know, if it has to do, let's say, with um, giving a presentation or, or being able to answer a question spontaneously in a group setting, let's say that makes you very afraid, you get very nervous, so you're the last one to show up at the meeting all the time and make sure you sit in the back or, you know, you tend to get sick every time there's some kind of little group meeting or something. Um, you would create, you would look at what your end goal is. The end goal is I want to be able to be able to think on the spot and feel perfectly comfortable answering questions. And even if it's not the right answer, I'm going to be okay with that. That's the end goal to get there. I create multiple little steps that are similar to that. So maybe um, one step is um, a simulation of having a friend ask me questions. That's different because it's just me. It's one-on-one. -on -one, I'm good with one-on-one -on -one, and it's a friend. It's not a group. Mm -hmm. Then maybe having um, talking to a stranger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then the next step. So it, the steps just get harder or closer and closer to the ultimate point that you want to get to of, say, a larger group, being able to speak up in a larger group and not feel too embarrassed to do that. So that's one example that does take a little bit more uh, work as far as having to kind of think out what is your problem that you're avoiding, because some people aren't even aware that they're right. doing all of this. It's all right. very natural, just this knee jerk. Oh, I don't I don't do this. I don't do that. And, and not realizing that that's the protection you've put in place that's actually making this thing worse that you'll ever even get over here and be able to do it. Right, right. All right, I see that showing up in my work in a couple of particular places. And one of them is I'm, I'm avoiding a person that I don't like interacting with because there's usually a lot of conflict and a lot of tension. And that makes me very nervous. And so I'm avoiding facing a problem and it just builds and builds and builds. And after a while, when you've avoided a person long enough, you got a secondary problem because you haven't dealt with the first one. <laughs> so creating small mini steps along the way that gets you over. So I, those are harder to imagine what they would be, but I can imagine articulating your point of view to a friend. I can imagine writing out your point of view. I can imagine visualizing the person in front of you and saying what you want to say. I can imagine looking at a photograph of the person and saying what you want to say. And I can imagine um, having a casual conversation with the person before you get into the really difficult part of the conversation. I can just see you inching up to being able to do mm -hmm. more of what it is that you know you need to address. And I can That's also right. see- it may not be the person, it may just be conflict in general. So then you create a process for how do I get a little bit more comfortable with having a different opinions from someone else and saying it out loud? 
Yeah, I saw an example of um, a step someone could use who doesn't like conflict. And I think I'd have trouble with this, like getting in um, line to pay at like the at the cash register at the grocery store and like pulling out a hundred pennies you know, yeah. or, or some like a whole bunch of change, anticipating that the people behind you are going to be grumbling and talking about you, but you standing your ground and counting out your change anyway. I mean, that's, you know, that's um that's a that's an, a very good example of how you're working in conflict even though you're not really having conflict with the person but it's a conflicted or conflictual situation right right you're going to have to live with people's discomfort or a frustration with you in order to get through it and i right. certainly also see it as you started with people who have anxiety about speaking and who get very nervous about speaking we've known for decades that going and standing in the place that you're going to give the talk um, rehearsing the talk in front of the mirror, rehearsing the talk with somebody else, going and rehearsing it in the space. Um, each step along the way just gets you more and more comfortable with that. So I love it. Fabulous. It's All right. Exactly. One more thing about that. And yeah. also you don't have, it doesn't have to be do this once you do it and you do the step until it becomes very comfortable and then you move on to the next one. So you're not trying to race through this to hurry up and get through my five steps. You stay at the step until you've mastered it. That's a really important one. So I keep doing and doing and doing until I've I feel comfortable in that step. And then I go to the next one. All right, Tracy, I know from the book that we could keep talking for another hour about the techniques that are there um, uh, and many other questions like when should I seek professional help? And I'm presuming your answer on that one is anytime you feel like you can't to do whatever you need to do on your own. Correct. Yeah, that's yes. the next level. It's mm -hmm. the next level. Okay. My guest today is Dr. Tracy Marks. The YouTube channel is Dr. Tracy Marks. Again, I highly recommend it. And the book is called Why Am I So Anxious? What I think I love about this one is just admitting that all of us are dealing at some point in our lives with a degree of anxiety. The question is, when does that degree of anxiety tip into an unhelpful place? And I can develop habits that make me wind that back to something that's more manageable. So Tracy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for this discussion. Thank you. And thanks for the work you're doing. Um, if you've liked today's podcast, please like us on your favorite podcast server or check out our um, subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com for more tips. And otherwise, we'll see you next week with another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. 
but I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.